We're going to be in Joshua 23 in just a few minutes. Getting close to the end of our study in the book of Joshua and moving forward. Which I feel has been very timely in the world in which we're living in and things which are going on around us. Today we're looking at a portion where we see some last words of Joshua. And, And last words can reveal quite a bit about what's important to someone in their lives. Years ago, I had a, a cassette tape, so that tells you how long ago it was. Uh, um, and it was a song written by a fellow named Danny Ledbetter. He's part of the Ledbetter family from the Free Will Baptist in Wichita, Kansas. And it was about his dad who founded the church, which they all kind of went to. And his dad had been a longtime Free Will Baptist preacher. They had kind of migrated, I think, from Arkansas to Kansas and started a church. And it was a very successful church. And they could all sing, so they had like the singing Ledbetters groups that went out and sang and evangelized. And, and his dad had served God faithfully for so many years, but he got old and he got sick and he got about to die. And, and if I'm remembering the story properly, he was dying somewhat painfully. Right? He wasn't just going to lay down, go to sleep, and then wake up in glory. He was pain and suffering and things going on. And according to the song, his, his dad laid there alone on his bed, dying. And he began to think about all he had preached through the years. About the grace of God being sufficient to see you through any of the trials or tribulations in his life. And now here he was in the dark valley of the shadow of death. And he wondered, was God's grace sufficient? He had told people that for many, many years. But was it true for him? Did he believe it in this moment? And his daddy called them all together, the kids and the grandkids together. And some of his very, very last words to them were, I was right. I was right. And according to Danny, what he said was, he told them he was right. God's grace was sufficient. God was good. He was there. And it was going to be okay. And then they prayed. And then he passed into glory. Danny's dad's last words were to encourage his kids to stay faithful to Jesus. He wanted them to know in this moment of darkness, in this moment of death, even though things weren't what they had prayed for, what they had hoped, God was still good. His grace was still sufficient. Those last words revealed what was important to Danny's dad. Joshua is old and about to die where we're at. And he is going to say some last words to the people, and it reveals what's important to him as well. So open your Bible to Joshua 23. should be on page 185 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Joshua 23, and it came to pass a long time after that the Lord had given rest unto Israel from all their enemies round about, that Joshua waxed old and stricken in age. And Joshua called for all Israel and for their elders and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers and said unto them, I am old and stricken in age. And you have seen all that the Lord your God hath done unto all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he that hath fought for you. Behold, I have divided unto you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off even to the great sea westward. And the Lord your God, he shall expel them from before you, shall drive them from out of your sight, and you shall possess the land as the Lord your God hath promised unto you. Be ye therefore very courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, that you turn not aside therefrom to the right hand nor to the left, that ye come not among these nations that remain among you, neither make mention of the names of their gods, nor cause to swear by them, neither serve them, nor bow yourselves down to them, but cleave unto the Lord your God as you have done unto this day. For the Lord hath driven out from among you, from before you, the great nations, strong, great nations and strong. But as for you, no man hath been able to stand from before you unto this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God, he it is that fighteth for you, as he hath promised you. Take good heed, therefore, unto yourselves, that you love the Lord your God. Else, if you do in any wise go back and cleave to the remnant of these nations, 
even those that remain among you and shall make marriages with them and go in unto them and they unto you. Know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you. But they shall be snares and traps unto you, scourges in your side, thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God hath given you. And behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts, you all know in your hearts, and in all your souls, that not one thing hath failed of all the good things which the Lord your God hath spake concerning you. And all are come to pass unto you, and not one thing hath failed thereof. Therefore it shall come to pass, that as all the good things are come upon you which the Lord your God hath promised you, so shall the Lord bring upon you all the evil things until he hath destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God hath given you, when you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed yourselves unto them. Then shall the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land from which he hath given unto you. The title of the message this morning is Remembering, so we can move forward. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, as we come today, our desire most of all is to meet with you. Our desire most of all is to hear from you. So right now in this moment, Lord, we surrender all things. Right now, we, we lay aside the cares of life. We lay aside anything that, that may be causing anxiety or strife within us. We ask for your help in this. So that in this moment, all we do is just listen for what your spirit and your word are going to say to us this morning. Give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to our church today. Give us hearts to respond in obedience to your word and take it and apply it to our lives. Let it sink way down deep in our hearts that it would bring forth good fruit for your glory, which would declare we are indeed your disciples. Father, have your way in all of our hearts and all of our lives and let us leave here. Father, more committed to you, more determined to do your will than we were when we came in. Search us. And try us, O God, and see if there's anything in our lives which is displeasing to you. And if there is, bring it to our attention and press on us hard. Until we would lay it on the altar and we'd repent and we would turn from it so we could live for your glory. Fill me this morning with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, and help me to speak your words and your ways for your glory. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So the last two chapters of Joshua are, are essentially Joshua's final words to the nation he has loved and led for many years. Now, to me, while Joshua calls for all the people, it makes an emphasis on the elders in verse 23, in chapter 23. Chapter 24 doesn't make such a distinction. And, and so for me, what I, what I see in this is Joshua in chapter 23, he talks to the leaders of Israel. And then in chapter 24, he talks to all uh, of Israel. Now, it tells us in verse 1 that a long time has passed from chapter 22. Chapter 22, they had peace from the land. They sent out uh, the two and a half tribes to go and occupy the land that was theirs. And so it has been a, a long time. The land has been at rest. They have not been in part of a national war anymore. There are still some people from the land in different spaces. And the different tribes are to go and to be fighting and pushing them out. Joshua, at this point, is old and in stricken with age. Now, if we assume, and I think it's right to assume the way it talks about it, that this message, both of these two messages, are given in the last year of Joshua's life. Um, Joshua's death is recorded in chapter 24. So Joshua is probably about 110 years old at this point in his life. So he has led the nation since he was a young man. He has conquered the nations. He has divided the nations. He has conquered his portion. He has lived at rest. And now he's old. He knows he's dying. And he calls the people together to give them one final piece of encouragement. What does a 110-year-old man say to the people he loves right before he dies? Well, the gist of the message seems to be, remember. Remember what the Lord has done. Remember where your strength 
comes from. Remember what God has said. Right? Just because they're now in the promised land, it doesn't mean that they are finished moving forward. There are still people in the land that should be pushed out. And even beyond that, they still have to move forward in living for God in daily faithfulness. And if they were going to be faithful to God, they were going to follow Him, they were going to move forward, there were some things they had to remember in order to move forward. So our key truth today is how well we remember determines how far forward we go. Right? Because Joshua tells them in this passage... That if they don't remember these things, something bad is going to happen, doesn't it? And that's kind of how the chapter ends. So how well we remember determines how far forward we go. And there are four truths we must remember from this passage. First, we must remember how we got here. Right in verse 3, Joshua says, And you have seen all that the Lord your God hath done to these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he that hath fought for you. Behold, I have divided unto you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from Jordan. With all the nations that I have cut off even unto the great sea westward. And then if you look over at verse 14. He says, you know in your hearts and your souls that not one thing of all the good things which the Lord God promised had failed to come to pass. If they were to continue to move forward, they have to remember how they got there in the first place. But their victory that they experienced in the land, it wasn't from them. It was from God. It was it was God who fought for them. It was God who expelled the people from the land. It was God who had done all that had been done. God had fought for Israel against the nations that were there. Now, you're familiar with the story of Joshua. You know, God's actions on behalf of the Israelites was many. God brought them out of Egypt, which by great signs and great wonders and displays of his great power. God parted the Red Sea so they could walk over as on dry land. And then God collapsed the Red Sea on top of the Egyptian army so they would see them no more again forever. God led them by a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night. God provided for them miraculously in the wilderness, whether it was manna or quail or water. God parted the Jordan River when it was time for them to cross over and to take the promised land. God gave them battle plans on how to take down Jericho. God made the walls of Jericho fall down. God rained down hailstones on their enemies. God made the sun to stand still. On and on we could go. It was God. It was all God. God did this in accordance with the promises He had given them. And not one good promise of all God had said had failed to come to pass. And if they wanted to remember or continue to move forward, they had to remember it was God who got them to where they are in the promised land. Because the danger, the very real danger, was to think they had done it. To get set up, to get situated, to get comfortable and look back and say, we were, man, we were awesome. We, I mean, you know, God was there, sure, sure, sure. But look at what we did to give us the land. If they weren't intentional about remembering it was God who got them there. They would be tempted and likely would begin to believe they had won the victories. They had done all that needed to be done. But God maybe helped a little, but they did all the heavy lifting. They would begin to take credit for what God had done in them and through them and for them. Now you and I, we are no less prone to taking the credit for where we are than the Israelites were. If we aren't careful, we begin to forget how we got to where we are. And one of the ways you see this with someone who's a disciple of Jesus is when they become self-righteous. Now, do you know what a a self-righteous disciple of Jesus actually is, though? It's an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. Because there is none righteous. No, not one apart from Jesus. All have sinned. All have fallen short. All are guilty. 
not one by themselves through their own effort, ever becomes even remotely righteous. In fact, the Bible says on our own, the very best we can do is filthy rags. But we are all as an unclean thing. And all, and all, all our righteousness are as filthy rags. And we do all fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Now the phrase filthy rags. A couple of different word pictures associated with it. One is that of a cloth used to wrap up a, a running putrid sore such as would be found on a leper. Now if you ever read about leprosy in the, in the Bible times, you know that it was pretty bad. Part of what would happen is there would be these boils and things that would come up and they would pop and they would just run. And the, the pus that ran out was not only gross, but it was foul smelling and it was also infected and could in fact infect others with leprosy. And they just kind of ran all the time. And so what lepers did to help was they would take strips of cloth and they would wrap them around the stuff to kind of catch it and hold it like a bandage. But eventually, because it ran so much, it would start to run out, to ooze out. And they would have to take it off and change it. But what to do with the bandages that they took off the sores? They were so filthy, they were so unclean, according to Jewish customs, they couldn't be cleaned. The only thing you could do with them was you could take them and you could burn them. They, were, they could not be reused. They could not be undefiled. Can you imagine a leper pulling this off, pulling it off and going, look, look at what I did. Isn't this awesome? Look how great I am. I did this all by myself. We, we can't imagine touching one of those kind of rags that it was talking about, much less someone trying to hold it up in pride and say, look at me, look how great I am. And yet, according to Isaiah, when we look at our righteousness, that's what it's like. And, and notice when Isaiah says, it's not our sin is like filthy rags. That would be bad enough. Our righteousness our goodness, the best you and I can do on our own apart from Christ is a putrid, defiled rag which cannot be cleansed by any natural means. That is how thoroughly unrighteous all of humanity is. This is true of all people in all places and all times. So how did people who are unrighteous in that way, filthy in that way, how how did we get to where we are, where we have the righteousness God in Christ, where we are without condemnation? How did we get here? Well, the Bible tells us. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. It's of Him that we're in Christ. So who's the Him that made it possible for us to be in Christ? Well, it's, it's God. Let's think about that. God the Father and God the Father alone made it possible for us to be in Christ. We can't take any credit for our salvation at all. Because apart from... God drawing us. Jesus says, no man comes to me unless the Father which sent me draws him. So the reality is, if we're saved today, we, we didn't just sit at home one day in our unrighteousness and think, hey, this is not the way it's supposed to be. I, I, I think I really need Jesus. I, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to give my life to Christ because that, that is the deepest need of my life right now. It's not what happened. Not for a single one of us. God reached out to us through the Holy Spirit. God drew us unto Jesus. But the Bible says that, that there is none who seek after God. Our sin nature is so pervasively strong in the unregenerate person that they never ever seek God unless God is seeking them first. 
to our salvation, where we are, it is God who guide us here. It is God who did it. And the rest of this passage is meant to illustrate this truth and remind us how we got here to where we are. How did we have the wisdom to realize we needed Jesus? I mean, probably none of us heard the gospel once and got saved on that day. Most of us likely heard it time after time after time. Why did one day we suddenly have the wisdom to realize that's for me. I need that because Jesus was made wisdom for us. Look at that. It came from Jesus according to the will and the work of God. It was Jesus working in us saying, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, when the Bible speaks of salvation, it often speaks of it in in three tenses. Past, present, and future. Right In the past, we were justified. And justification is the moment where we were made righteous in God's sight. That's when the Spirit drew us. And we said, that's for me. And we went to the cross and we cried out to Jesus to save us. And we were in that moment born again. And all of our sin and all of our guilt was taken away. We were justified. And notice... Our righteousness then was come to us through Christ. How did, how did people whose righteousness is filthy rags come to be righteous at all? It was Jesus coming into our lives. You say, well, yeah, that was then, but man, I've grown a lot. I mean, I, I have grown as a Christian. I've grown the grace, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Well, that takes us to the second tense of salvation. Present tense. Sanctification. Right? Justification is in the past. Sanctification is in the present. That is the, the act of, of our becoming more and more like Christ. It begins on the day we're saved. It continues until we go home to be with Jesus. So we have progressed in sanctification. We are more like Him in our attitudes and our actions and our speech and our priorities and our values and how we react to issues. And, and in every area of our life, we are more like Jesus. How did we get here? But Jesus became our sanctification. He made it possible for us to be more like Him. Yeah, but then there's heaven, right? So I'm going to hang tight and then I'm going to go there and then that's I did that. Well... That's the third tense, the future, the glorification. Justification is in the past. Sanctification is in the future. In the present, glorification is in the future. That's when we're delivered not only from the punishment of sin and the power of sin, but the very presence of sin, and we go to be with Him. So how do we, what, what makes it so that we get to be redeemed and we get to go there and we get to experience the fullness of our salvation? Well, But of Him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us redemption. When we stand before the Lord in glory, we'll not say, look at me, God. Look at what I did. We'll not even say, we did it, God, you and me. You helped. I did most of the heavy lifting. It was you the whole way. It was your idea to save me. It was you who gave me wisdom. It was you who justified me. It was you who sanctified me. It's you that's brought me here and glorified me in this moment. Therefore, as it is written, he that glories, glory in the Lord. If we want to keep moving forward, we have to remember how we got to where we are. And it wasn't by our goodness our intelligence, our cleverness, or even our good works. It was what the Lord has done for us. What the Lord has done in us and what the Lord has done through us. None of us got to where we are in Christ apart from the mercy, the grace, and even the enabling of Almighty God. Do you want to stop moving forward in your relationship and your service to Jesus? Become self-righteous. Start thinking about all you have done and how you have grown and what you have accomplished. And you will stop moving forward almost 
immediately. How well we remember determines how far we move forward. And we must remember how we got here. Secondly, we have to remember where future victory and future strength come from. Just because they've conquered the majority of the people in the land doesn't mean there are no more battles to fight. There will always be enemies to face. And so what would they do in that time? Well, look at verse 5. And the Lord your God, He shall expel them from before you and drive them from out of your sight that you shall possess the land and the Lord your God hath promised unto you. Right? They would, they would do what they've always done when they came upon new enemies. They would call upon God and they would depend upon God. The God who expelled people in the past is the God who expelled people in the future. He would defend them in the past. He would defend them in the future. He fought for them in the past. He would fight for them in the future. Just as past victory depended upon God, future victory no less depended on God. God would give them the strength they needed to overcome their enemies. Look at verse 9 and 10. For the Lord hath driven out from among you great nations and strong. But as for you, no man hath been able to stand before you unto this day. So there's the past. But notice the next verse. One man of you shall chase a thousand. That's future. For the Lord your God, he it is that fighteth. That's future. As he hath promised. The God who gave them strength and victory in the past is the God who would give them strength and victory in the days ahead. We have the same sort of problem and the same sort of promise. We have fought enemies in the past, whether it be the world, the flesh, or the devil, and we have overcome to get where we are at this particular moment. But victories in the past do not mean no more battles in the present or in the future. Surely, more battles are coming. More struggles are there. Our flesh does not die quickly. The enemy does not give up easily. The world is always at odds with God and the people of God. What shall the righteous do when the foundations be destroyed? Well, we shall do in the present and in the future what we have done all throughout our past. And that is we will look to our God to give us the strength and the victory in these times of crisis. This is one of my very, very favorite passages of Scripture. I would like to take a lot of time and look at it, but we just don't have time this morning. But Isaiah 40, 28-31, Hast thou not known... Hast thou not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, feigneth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. So we're first being drawn to the greatness and the majesty of God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. Right. So he is he spoke the world into existence, but he feigneth not, nor is weary. It means he never gets tired. Right. And it goes on to say there's no. Searching of his understanding means he knows all things about everything and there's no end to his knowledge. And the kind of the implication is just as there's no end to his knowledge, there's no end to his strength. God doesn't grow weary. God doesn't get tired. He has unlimited strength to do anything he wants to do. The Bible would say this in ways like our God is in the heavens and he does whatsoever he pleases and, and no one can oppose him. That our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or imagine, right? On and on and on. The Bible just tells us our God can do anything, which, that's great. But how does that help us in our time of need? Well, Isaiah gives us the answer. He giveth power to the faint, to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Now, that is a powerful, hopeful part right there. He has all power. And He gives that power. He shares it. He helps those who faint and who have no might. Now, I don't have time to get into this too much, but let me just say there's an air of humility on our part with receiving this. Does He help the strong? Does He help the capable? Does He help those who think they've got it under control? Not according to this passage. According to this passage, He helps the faint. He helps those who have no might. So what, what does it take from us to receive strength from God? It takes from us to go to God and say, I, I can't. I'm weak. 
I'm unable to go any further. I, I can't do what needs to be done on my own. To humble ourselves and say, I need you. The proud, the Bible says, God knows from afar. The proud, God, the Bible says, God turns his, way, his head away from. But the humble, he, he hears, he draws near. Do you need strength and help from the God? Then you must acknowledge your weakness. You must acknowledge your inability. You must be like the Apostle Paul who said, I will glory in my weakness, for in my weakness, then I am strong. Now, here's it gets even better. Everyone is eventually going to need strength from the Lord. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. Even the young men shall utterly fall. Right? So, no matter how strong someone may be, Physically, emotionally, or spiritually, there will come a time where they reach the end of their abilities. Everyone does. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So there's humility and there's submission. We have to wait upon the Lord. Because see, God, God isn't a genie, right? We can't say God do this, and God's like, oh yes, let me jump to do that. God doesn't work that way. There are times where God will make us wait far beyond what we think what we think is appropriate, what we think He should, where we thought He He might. All throughout Scripture, we see God calling on people to wait and making people wait, and the reason for that is I think one of two things. One is either the time is not right for His help. Or, and I think this is the most likely one, it reminds us who's God, who's the servant. Who's Lord, who's the servant. Who's Creator, and who's the creation. But if I say God do this and it instantly happens, I kind of get to thinking it's about me, isn't it? It's about me. Look at what God does for me. But then when I say, God, help, and I have to wait, and I have to wait, and I have to wait. And then eventually God comes through. I realize, oh, yeah, he's God. I'm not. But if we wait upon the Lord, we humble ourselves and we surrender to him and to his time. Then we shall our strength shall be renewed. We will mount up with wings like eagles. We will run and not be weary. We'll walk and not faint. We'll just be able to do far more than we ever thought possible. We are all going to run out of strength at some point. We may have just come through a massive battle that we have overcome and we feel strong. Because we often do. There are more battles in the future. There is something coming just around the bend for all of us. That's not... Negativity, that's not woe is me, Eeyore type stuff. That's just reality. Life is living in victory on the mountain and then going down in the valley and struggling to get back up on the mountain again. And the God who got us to the mountain the first time will see us through the valley this time and get us back to the mountain the next time. We have to trust that. We have to remember When these battles come and they feel they're overwhelming, they feel they're beyond our strength and our capabilities, we have to remember that God who gave us strength in the past will give us strength in the future. The God who gave us victory in the past will give us victory in the future. How well we remember determines how far forward we go. We must remember where future victory and future strength comes from. Thirdly, we must remember who's first. So remember how we got here. Remember where future victory and strength come from. And then remember who's first. Now part of what they needed to remember is who was first in their lives. Of course, the point was God is first. It's a huge part of the idea in the Ten Commandments to have no other gods before me. In verse 6, it says, Be ye therefore very courageous, to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, you turn not aside from it to the left hand nor to the right. right so what is written in the law, you, you obey it and you don't turn away in any way. You just go headlong, full force, do the will of God as revealed in Scripture. And then after laying the foundation, 
of obeying God's word, he gets into some very specific ways they are to do it. Verse 7, that you come not among these nations that remain among you, neither make mention of the names of their gods, nor cause to swear by them, nor serve them, nor bow yourselves down unto them. Right, So they were to have nothing to do with the gods of the land. Right, they weren't to worship them. They weren't to talk about them. They weren't to swear by them. They weren't to serve them. They weren't to bow down to them. Right, They were to have absolutely nothing to do with the gods of the nations that were there before they were arrived. Rather, in verse 8, they were to cleave unto the Lord their God. As they had done up until this day. Now cleave pictures being inseparably joined together. But it is a picture of the people of God are to view their connection to God. That, that we are inseparably joined with God. And if I'm inseparably joined with God. Then the natural result would be I would give God the priority in my life. Because again, He is God and I'm not. So since I'm inseparably joined to Him, it's His will and His way is the priority and the primary. But notice something about this that I find interesting. Verse 6, very first of it. Be ye therefore very courageous. The preface to the command to obey the Word and have nothing to do with the gods of the land, to keep God first, is to be Courageous. It's interesting, I think. Because do you ever think about courage in relation to keeping God first in your life? Now, think about with them, though. We, we probably familiar with the Old Testament stories. When the nation as a whole would kind of swerve away from God and someone would be would cleave to the Lord their God and would put him as the first part in their life and say, no, no, we ought not do this. We ought to do what God has said. How did the people respond? Was it kind of one of those, ah, oh, you do your thing and I'll do mine, we'll be okay. No, they were like, beat you and throw you in a pit and tell you to shut up and threaten to kill you. So when everybody was putting God first and cleaving unto the Lord, it, it may not have taken quite as much courage. But the day would come in which it wasn't what everyone was doing. It wasn't the common thing to have God first. It wasn't common to not worship the other gods. It wasn't common to, to not talk about them, to not swear by them, to not serve them, to not bow to them, and to cleave unto the Lord your God. And in that day, at that moment, they would be courageous. They must be courageous to do what God has said and not to do what everyone else was doing. It's no different really in our day. For us as Americans, it hasn't been overly difficult for God to be first in our lives. To be fully devoted disciples of Jesus. And in the past when most people either respected Christianity or at least nominally affirmed Christianity, it didn't take a particular amount of courage to be a fully devoted disciple of Jesus. Most would have respected that. Most would have understood that. But we're not there anymore. And we're not going back there. I mean, the world is different. Our country, our world is different. And the time is coming quickly. When having a, being a fully devoted disciple of Jesus, making Him the priority in our lives, is not only going to be not accepted or not respected, it will be like it was in the days of Israel. Why don't you just shut up? Nobody cares about your bigoted, narrow-minded, fundamentalist ideals. Maybe you shouldn't even be allowed to work with our kids. Maybe you shouldn't be allowed to work at this job. Maybe. Maybe we just need to get you out of our lives altogether. What will we do then? In that day, at that time, it will take courage to be a fully devoted disciple of Jesus. 
Will we have the courage to ensure Jesus is the priority in our lives when giving Him this priority makes our lives difficult? Will we have the courage to ensure Jesus is the priority in our lives when giving Him this priority causes problems with our family? Not because Jesus warns that the day will come when it's people of your own household won't accept it. Will we have the courage to ensure Jesus is the priority in our lives when giving Him this priority causes difficulties with our friends? Will we have the courage to ensure Jesus is the priority in our life when giving Him the priority is physically painful? There hasn't been a whole lot of physical persecution in America. But I don't doubt we'll see it. Will we have the courage to ensure Jesus is the priority of our lives and give Him the priority when it's financially costly? Again, it hasn't been too financially costly for Americans. But again, I think the day is coming. And I think if you watch the news, you see that there is a push to say, well, Christians can't serve in this role. Right? Because they have bigoted beliefs. Or what they think is right goes against what the, what the judges have determined is right. And there is a, a try to, to push them out. Well, so far that's just up on the mountaintop type stuff. But make no mistake, it, what's up on the mountain eventually rolls downhill to the, where everybody else lives. Will we have the courage to ensure Jesus is the priority when it costs us money and makes our lives financially difficult? We, we have to. We have to remember who is first. And we have to be devoted to doing His will, no matter what that will might be. If we want to continue to move forward, Jesus has to be first, because we're not moving forward following ourselves. We're not moving forward doing our will and our want. We're moving forward following Jesus. And even... Even if no difficulties come, the day will come when Jesus will say, go here and do that, and we won't want to. Who will be first in our lives at that moment? If we want to continue to move forward, Jesus has to be first. How well we remember determines how far forward we go. And we must remember who's first. And then finally, remember to go forward and not to go back. In these last few verses, which we are going to have to cover very quickly, Joshua tells them to go forward. Right, Verse 12, if you do in any wise, go back and cleave to the remnant of these nations even those that remain among you and make marriages with them. Right? And he begins to list several serious and severe consequences which will come into their lives if they go back instead of going forward. Right? They will lose spiritual power. Right? Look at verse 12 and 13. If you go back and make marriages unto them, know for a certainty that the Lord your God, verse 13, will no more drive out any of these nations from before you. Now remember, how did they? How were the nations driven out by their might, their power, their strength? No, it was God who did it. So, if God stops fighting for them, what happens then? They lose the ability to drive the nations out. They lose the ability to be able to win these victories and to win these battles. And that will happen if they will go back. For us, it's not any different. Spiritual power comes from being spirit-filled and spirit-led in our lives. And if we are to be spirit-filled and spirit-led and have spiritual power, we cannot go back. We have to go forward. Right? The Spirit is leading us one way, and the world and the flesh and the devil are leading us another And if I am to follow the Spirit, I will have spiritual power. But the moment... The Spirit says go left and I choose to go right. I lose my spiritual power. 
We cannot go back the way we came. Go back and do the things we did before we were saved. And live the lives we lived before we knew Jesus. And expect to see the fruit of the Spirit be born in our lives. To expect to have anything the Bible talks about with the Spirit filling us and causing into our lives. If we walk in the flesh, we should not be surprised that we reap of the flesh. And we miss out on all the spiritual power God would and wants to give us. Secondly, there would be constant trouble. Look at verse 13. So God would cease to fight for them, but they shall be snares and traps for you, scourges in your side, thorns in your eyes, till you perish from the good land which the Lord your God has given you. But when they turned and went back, not only would God cease to fight for them, but these people that were left, that they were cleaving to, would then become problems, snares and traps, causing all sorts of issues in their life. Now again, if you've read the Old Testament, particularly the book of Judges, you know this is exactly what happens. Early in the book of Judges, they begin to intermarry. Early in the book of Judges, they begin to say, how do these people worship their gods? Maybe we should bow down before them too. Maybe we should serve them. Maybe we should be and talk about how do they do it? What can we do like them? And as they did this, they became constant trouble. There was just a... The book of Judges and the Old Testament as a whole has a constant theme. Israel was at rest. They rebelled. God sends prophets to say, don't do this thing I hate. Turn back unto me. They reject the prophets. They ignore them. God sends judgment and punishment onto their lives. And they go into captivity or they go into some sort of oppression and suffering. In the midst of this, after years of suffering, they finally cry out to the Lord, Oh God, we're sorry. Deliver us, O God. And then God would raise up a judge who would come and deliver the people and cast off the oppression and they would have peace. And then they would rebel. And then there would be judgment. And there would be oppression. And after years of oppression, they would cry out and a deliverer would raise up. Over and over and over again. And and throughout the book of Judges particularly, the people they had problems with wasn't so much people from outside the land. It was mostly from people they left in the land. They went back to, intermarried with, And worshipped their gods. To the point for us. When we don't continue moving forward following Jesus. We are setting ourselves up for failure. The life of following Christ. It's not an easy life. It's not a natural life. To follow Jesus. We we go against the flow. I've used the, the, the illustration that following Jesus is walking up a down escalator. And when we stop, we don't stand still. We begin to go back. And the further back we go, the more the stuff we've left behind becomes snares and thorns in our eyes and troubles that we begin to have. You see, the sin that we have left behind to follow Jesus, it, it's not dead. It's not gone. Bible describes it like as a as a stalking lion waiting, a crouching lion waiting for the right time to pounce. It's waiting on us to stop so we can come back and it can grab us and pull us in. If we go backward and not forward, there's going to be constant trouble. And then verse 16 and 15, we see a loss of God's blessings. Therefore it shall come upon come to pass that as the good things shall come upon you as the Lord your God promised, so shall the Lord bring upon you all the evil things until He has destroyed you from off this good land with which the Lord your God has given you. When you transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, she commanded you and have gone and served other gods and bowed yourself to them. Then shall the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the, the good land which He had given you. God intended on them to have the land, to live the land perpetually. But if they began to go back, go back to the way they came and to be among the people that God had delivered them from, then what was going to happen was only would there be temporal judgment that would make them oppressed in their own land. The day would come in which God would kick them out of the land that He had given them. They would miss all of God's great blessings on their lives. And this too is what will happen to us. The things God wants to do in our lives are great. I was reading in my Bible yesterday in Psalm 81 maybe. 
and, and God writing through the speaking through the psalmist says, open up your mouths wide and I will feel it. And the next verse says, but my people wanted nothing to do with me. So here was God wanting to give them all of these good things. The people really wanted what the world had to offer instead. And so they missed all God had for them. What God wants for all of us is good. I mean, there's just no doubt. Scripture is clear. He wants us to have life and life more abundantly. If we're disciples of Jesus and we don't have that, why? Could it be because we're going back into the way we came? And God is withholding blessings from us, not because he can't or doesn't want to, but because we're choosing other than him. We're choosing to miss out on what he has. He says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And we say, no, no, I I want to do this instead. We have to remember to go forward, never go back. I'll, I'll close with this verse. Jesus talking to a group of people. That he calls to follow him or people who say they're going to follow him. And one by one, they say, I'll follow you, Lord, but first. And Jesus says, follow me. And they say, I will, but first. And they would follow Jesus, but first they had to go back and do something. And Jesus' response is, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. There comes a point in our lives where if we're really going to be serious about Jesus, we have to to not look back, to not go back, to say, I'm, I'm going forward no more. First Kings 19, it tells the story of the call of Elisha. And Elisha goes to a, a young man who's plowing in a field. And he says to him, he just walks up to him and he puts his mantle on him. And Elisha knows that's what he's being called to be a prophet of God. And he says, I'll come, but first let me go back and tell my parents. And Elijah says, okay, you do that, but consider what I've done to you. And Elisha walks back over to his plow, and he gets to his animals, and he kills them, and he makes a sacrifice for them, and he walks away from that life to follow God completely. The reality is for some of us, we're saying, I'll follow you, God, but first I've got to go back and do this. But first I need to take care of this. But first I want to do this a little bit more. For many of us, the the need today is to only go back far enough to kill the animals. To tear the plow up and to turn it into an altar and sacrifice it to the Lord and say, I'm not going back anymore. I'm just going forward with Jesus. At some point, at some point we have to choose. Elijah told the people on Mount Carmel, how long halt you between two opinions? If the Lord is God, serve Him. And if Baal is God, serve Him. Joshua will say something similar next week. How long will we halt between two opinions? How long will we say, but first, let me go back? At some point, we have to choose who is first in our lives. And say, I'm going forward. And I am not going back again. I want you to stand as come to a close.